to Revelation 5 as we look at the second part of that chapter that we began to look at last time. Revelation 5. And uh, you will remember, and it's important for us to keep in mind that uh, what God is dealing with here, what we are dealing with, is a vision. A vision. Communicating things for us that are so far above and beyond us, uh, they're communicated in things that we can understand. And I've likened them uh, different times to uh, movies like uh, The Lord of the Rings or uh, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. You see in Lord of the Rings, as Tolkien tries to communicate the principles of salvation through characters like Frodo with the ring, uh, who is given the, the task of bearing the evil ring to Mount Doom, and ultimately it destroys him. He is a savior figure. Uh, Gandalf, who dies and rises again and comes back just at the right time, is a savior figure. And then Aragon, the, the king who comes back and assumes his rightful throne, again, is a Christ figure. So all three of those uh, embody something of Christ. Uh, the same as we saw was true in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Aslan, as Aslan is taken, he allows himself to be taken, in the place of uh, uh, the... Um, the young uh, man, uh, was it uh, James? Is that his name? What? Ed, Edwin. Edmund. Edmund, thank you. He became Edmund the Just, if you remember. Edmund the Just, because Aslan allows himself to be taken and killed by the white wish, witch on the stone table. And uh, again, Lewis is communicating something of what Christ did. And what Revelation is, in many ways, is doing that. Is saying, this is so far beyond us the, in, in thinking about it that we need to use language that people can understand. You remember I said that John saw a real vision. He's not making up a story. He's actually in the Spirit, as he says, seeing something real. But he's communicating history through uh, images and, and, and uh, things that the people would understand. We saw at the beginning this drama of God sitting on His kingly throne. We're in the throne room of heaven and a scroll is presented which represents, which is written on both sides. You remember we saw that that has God's disposal of all of creation. God, what, what God is doing in everything, not just with our souls, but with everything in the world. Uh, as, as Paul says there in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we're talking, what we're talking about there is in that scroll, Jesus, God's disposal of all the things in the world. Now, God has a plan for the world. But there is a problem. The problem is sin. And without something or someone intervening, all that is left is judgment. Now, that is 
That makes sense of the world because we live in a world like that. We live in a world in a system of punishments and reward, a system of laws. And God, and those things are a reflection of who God is. And in order for God's justice to be satisfied, in order for God to keep God from simply destroying us, which He must do if He is holy. I want you to think about that. If God is good, He must, must, must punish sin. Otherwise, He's not good. He must do it. But God's desire for the world originally was not punishment and, and uh, 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 enslavement. It was freedom, creation, beauty, grace, all of these things. That's where the weeping of John comes into play. No one is able to execute that. No one is good enough. No religious leader, no political person. No one, John, looks, scours the whole of the universe and nothing can get us beyond this point. And so it stops. The book is sealed. It can't go any further. And John says, I wept much. What an amazing thing John is going through. What an amazing drama. It, teaching us the utter bankruptcy of the human race. And ultimately the sufficiency of Jesus. He takes the scroll. One comes. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll. Not only take it, but to open its seals. And that is, as we will see here, because of what He did. So this, the, this, this chapter, in com contrast to chapter 4, is showing us the Lamb. Who is the subject of chapter 4? God on His throne. God on the throne. He is the Creator. He is the Sustainer. And the heavenly beings are pre praising God the Father. The, sh the scene now in chapter 5 shifts to someone else. And he is called the Lamb. The Lamb. And we saw something of that last week. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the praise is not the one sitting on the throne, but the Lamb who realizes all of God's purposes. Remember, I want you to see these two entities. Here is God, here is man, and there is a standstill between the two. You remember the Philistines and the Israelites on one hill and, and Goliath would come and taunt them and Israel were... In encapsulated with fear and so on. And someone needed to come, a champion needed to come to defeat the, 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 the giant Goliath. And David comes. And in the Spirit of God, and in the power of God, and in faith to God, he defeats the great giant. And all Israel win in him. He is a picture of Jesus in that. He realizes 
the purposes of God for Israel again. And the weeping ends, the mocking ends, the taunting ends, and Israel are able to go forward as a nation. And the Lamb is also worshipped as God. He's worshipped fully as God. That all the things that were ascribed to God in chapter 4 are now ascribed to Jesus in chapter 5. All glory and dominion and power and honor. They fall down and worship the Lamb. Aren't they supposed to be worshipping God? Yes, they are, because He is God. This is the Trinity coming out for us here. The, tr the word Trinity, I don't know if you know this, but it's not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It was a word that was used to describe the reality that theologians saw in the Bible. So the word tri, which is three, and unity, which means, of course, one, squashed together, you have three in one. And that's what we're seeing here. And he, it, it tells us that uh, they uh, have harps and golden bowls full of incense. There's worship going on here. The language is that of the Old Testament. Again, you see, this is language that they can get a hold of. This is language that they can understand. Oh, we know what harps were, were for. We know what bowls of incense were for. And the incense was burned as the... And then as the smoke went up, that was a picture of prayers ascending to heaven. Which shows us that the prayers of the saints are at the very heart of what's going on here. Your prayers and my prayers have an impact on the kingdom of God. God allows that. He stirs us up to pray. He works out His purposes through our prayers whether they be a little child sitting on the side of their bed or a, 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 a preacher or a mother or a father or whoever it is, whenever those prayers go up for neighbors, for friends, for world events as we have just done, those prayers are ascending. And as we agree as one to what's being prayed, the incense is going up before God. And world events are being shaped through prayers. Now that gives us a great sense of dignity when it comes to our prayers. Otherwise, why would God tell us? Why, why would God mock us to tell us to pray when, you know, when He's not going to do anything with them or through them? He would be simply mocking us, wouldn't He, to tell us to pray and all for nothing. Oh, well, you pray, it'll keep you busy. Just like a husband is told to go boil water when his wife is having a child. Go boil water and get some towels. It's pretty well much to keep the husband busy. Keep him distracted. It's not that way when it comes to believers. God integrates our prayers in the work of the kingdom. And this is what is going on. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song. The weeping has stopped. The singing has begun. Because God's beautiful purposes are being realized. Wouldn't it be horrible to think of this universe in all its glory and vast expanse and this earth and all its beauty to see all that come to an end and come 
and, and not for us to enjoy that with the God who created it. But now, because of Jesus, that has now continued on. And now they are singing. They're singing a new song because a new era has dawned. The old is passing away. The old prophecies that we sang in Psalm 2 and Psalm 45 are now fulfilled. So what do we do? Psalm 23 is fulfilled. We sing a new song, the Song of the Lamb, which speaks of the full realization of God's purposes in Jesus. The Old Testament was like a shadow. You're going around groping kind of in the dark and you can see, you can make out things. But now the light switch has been turned on and we can see clearly. We can say, ah, here and there and over here. Psalm 45 and Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53 and Genesis 3 and all, all over the place. We can sing a song unto God which is new and fully realized in Jesus Christ. It's a new covenant that has been usher, ushered in. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood, with the precious blood of Jesus. The blood of the Son of God. It's incredible. And this is what now unleashes heaven in song. And what are they singing about? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. I want that to sit upon your mind. Because he's describing the God who made all things. He's describing the God who has all dominion and power. John says in his Gospel, all things were made by him and for him. He upholds all things by the word of his power in Hebrews 1. And now, he is being described as the one who was slain. Not just died, but cut to pieces. As was the Old Testament lamb. The lamb was taken and sacrificed. It was cut to pieces. And this is what John is saying. Now, as I said at the beginning, some of the language in Revelation is symbolic. It's a picture. But when we describe Jesus as being slain, we're using it in its fullest, realest sense. Because that is what happened to Him. He was torn to shreds by the Roman cat of nine tails when shell and bits of bone were put on the end of a, a whip and when it hit Him, the flesh would come off His body. He would have been reduced to bones. where you could, he, he could say, I could see my bones. I can count my bones. That's how Jesus was torn apart the, the, when the crown of thorns went down upon His head. And so John is saying here, He was literally slain, not figuratively. So it puts the worthiness of Jesus not in simply His divine person. Not simply that He is God, but that He is the Lamb slain. Because He humbled Himself from the 
from heaven itself to become a sacrifice, yielding His soul over to death for sinners like you and I. That's what He became. That's what He chose to become. It's one thing to be forced into something. It's another thing out of your free will to choose to do it. He allowed Himself to become the Lamb of God. This is what we're seeing. And what does that mean for us when He uses these words like slain? He doesn't try to dress it up, does He? He doesn't try to water it down. He just throws it out there on two different occasions in this chapter. Three different occasions. The word slain. Friends, if that is at the center of history as the Bible tells us, what does that mean for us this morning in terms of our relationship with God? In terms of our point of entry into the presence of God or as what we might call ourselves children of God or what it means to enjoy the benefits of salvation. When God keeps putting up this sign, slain, slain, slain. Well, I can't get away from it, can I? I've got to deal with that word if he keeps throwing it up in my face. Slain, slain, slain. What are you going to do with it? It's like somebody poking you. Come on. They take a stick. What are you going to do about it? Come on. Come back at me. You just, are you just going to stand there and take it? Or are you just stand there with a blank look on your face? Slain, slain, slain. Well, you finally realize that I have to deal with this word slain. And I have to ask why it was that this glorious God that came into this world as a human being, man and God in one person, was slain. It must say something about me, not Him. Because He is worshipped as holy. We saw that in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. It must have something to do with me. And that if I am to know God, if I am to be reconciled unto this God, I must deal with that word slain in terms of myself. And the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's an Old Testament principle going way back. You see, the Bible doesn't change as it goes along. It doesn't invent new ways of being saved as, as it goes from Moses into David and into the prophets and then Jesus. And you get several uh, you know, cycles of different ways of being saved. No, it's without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And he puts it at the center because he's saying that this is the only point of entry into God's presence. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes should not perish. If God is good, He must punish sin. And we would say that of any judge in the world, any judge in Canada, we'd say he, he, He's got to punish that crime. Or He's not worthy of respect. And we say the same about God. But God intervenes. He knows He must punish sin, and He will. Every sin will be punished. 
But for those who believe, those who trust, those who see, He punishes our sins in Christ. Sins so vast. You know, the psalm says of my sin, that my sin rises up before God like what? A mountain. A mountain. My sin is like a mountain in my eyes. What about the sin of the world? What about the sins of hundreds of millions of people? Jesus Himself bearing those sins in His body on the cross. And that's why it tells us, it puts it in violent language, in jarring language, language that splashes cold water in our face and makes us say, wait a minute, what is going on here? Why, is he keep, why does He keep using this word? Because of the utter darkness and violence into which Jesus fell to satisfy a holy God, friends. There's no getting around it. And this is why John says, I saw Him, I turned and I looked and I saw a Lamb looking as it had been slain from the foundation of the world. And then He says here, Worthy are you, for you were slain. And then in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So I put down all my arguments, I put down all my resistance, and I say, if I'm going to come to God, if I'm going to come to this God, I can choose another one. I can make up one. But if I'm going to come to this God, I have to deal with that word slain. And why was He slain? He was slain for me. It must speak of the heinousness of my sin, the gravity of my sin before a three times holy God. And when I do, when I come to that point, I sing. I rejoice. Because now I know, I know I, I'm not held accountable for those anymore. Jesus paid the price. The bill is paid. That's what He says on the cross. It is finished. The bill is paid. There's no more for you to pay. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. This again, just like the Old Testament, the temple imagery, this again takes us back into the Old Testament where Israel for 400 years were slaves in Egypt. And God redeemed His people. He bought them. He brought them out of the land. And you remember when they were coming out the night before, what does God say? Take a lamb. Each household, take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorposts. And when the angel sees it, he will pass over and he will spare the firstborn in that house. That was a picture of their redemption. The idea is like if you have a watch, maybe your father gives you a watch, but you fall into hard times, you've got to go to the, uh, the, the, the uh, pawn shop, sell off your watch, Say, I hate to do this, but I need the cash. And then you start making some money, and after a while, maybe a year or so later, you say, I wonder if that watch is still there. So you go back and you say, hey, that watch, that was my dad's watch. I want to buy that watch. Oh, yeah, 150 bucks, and it's yours. Well, I only sold it for 50 Yeah, 150 bucks, it's yours. He's, it's usually a high price, isn't it? And this is what Jesus does. He ransoms us. And the price that he pays is his blood. So Peter says, you were ransomed not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
You see, if we, if we come before God with gold or silver and try to buy our way in, Lord, I'll put a piece on the church. I'll put new carpet on the floor. I'll put a new sound system in. I'll, you know, I'll, 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 just don't ask me to believe any of this stuff. I'll, I'll do whatever. You know. Gold or silver, forget it. You were purchased with the blood of the Lamb of God. Ransom, paid. He paid that price. So Paul says in him, we have redemption. We go about as free people, thinking we're free, right? Well, I can get in my car, go here, there, wherever. But the Bible says we're slaves. We're slaves to sin. And ultimately, if we live in our sin, we will die in our sin. But Jesus comes to free us, to set us free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He redeems us. He buys us back with the price of His blood. And God demanded a, price, a payment price. We couldn't just walk out of slavery. We couldn't just walk away from the accountability that we had before God. You can't do that this morning. No matter how free you may feel right now, you can't just walk away from the debt that you have before God. But the good news is that Jesus on the cross paid the debt of our sins. He paid that price. He paid the ransom. Often a ransom is very high, isn't it? You know, we've got your, your, your father. We've got your son. We've got, there's a, and the price is $2 million and you won't see them again. $2 million, where are we going to get that? It's just always an exorbitant amount, isn't it? But never was there a ransom price like the ransom for your soul. Never was there a higher price paid in anything than the price for your soul and my soul. And it was the blood of Christ. How precious. How precious is the blood of Jesus today. How we sing about it. How we praise God for it. And this is why the first thing that they say is, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. Not just one group of people. Not just Jewish people. Not just white people. Not just Western people. But he says, for every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, he uses every grouping of people. Whether they're a language or a nation or whoever. It, that makes Christianity a universal faith. And, and so Jesus, in, in, before He leaves, He says to His disciples, go into all the nations, make disciples of the nations, teaching them whatever I have commanded you. So it's not a local religion. It's not a religion just for the Jews. It's not a religion for Westerners. It's a religion for all people everywhere. South America, North America, Africa, Asia, wherever. And the Gospel is going out through all the world today. It's being proclaimed. It's being preached. To every strata of society, rich and poor, kings and queens. Whether you're a monarchist or not, and lots of people are not monarchists. Maybe there are not a lot of monarchists here. But I think people have been 
saying a great deal about the Queen and a lot about the Queen's faith. In 2011, in her Christmas speech, the Queen said these words. She said, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves. I would have taken out the word sometimes. Sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. The Queen was acknowledging that this is the human condition. She goes on to say, God sent into the world a unique person. Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a Savior with the power to forgive. Those are powerful words from the most important, powerful woman in the world. The Queen. Acknowledging that her herself was a sinner. She herself needed a Savior. And that God didn't send a healthcare worker. He didn't send a philosopher. He didn't send a general. He didn't send an economic advisor. He didn't send any of these things. He sent a Savior because that's what we need. We need to be saved from ourselves and we need to be saved ultimately from God. And what a wonderful thing for her to acknowledge that in her address. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Can you imagine how that sounds to people in North Korea? Can you imagine how that sounds to people who are struggling in other parts of the world where they have suffered the loss of all things? Their families thrown in prison, their houses, their churches burned down, whatever. They've suffered. And yet here he comes, he says, you've made them a kingdom. You see, we sang in Psalm 45 about the king who comes to his throne, and Jesus is that. Psalm 2 echoes that. I've installed my king on his holy hill, but he has a queen as well, don't we? we we've been thinking this week about the Charles ascending the throne. Camilla at his side as queen consort. She will be there with him by his side and enjoying and going through all the things that he goes through. But at the same time, our greater king, Jesus, also has a bride, and that is us. That is his church. We have been given a kingdom. What does that make us do? That makes us hold loosely on the things of this world. I can be generous. I can be forgiving. I don't need to build my own kingdom here and now because Jesus is going to give me a kingdom. All things are mine in Christ, whether I'm a, a king or a pauper. I sweep, sweep the streets of, of the city. It doesn't matter. I can be content knowing that God, through the blood of Christ, has made me. He's not just redeemed me. He's not just saved me, but He's made something of me. He's put me in His kingdom as one of His children to enjoy His glory and priest to our God. Now that is something when you, if you put yourself in the first century and you think about the privilege of being a priest in the Old Testament. Remember when Zechariah was called to be a priest? Wow, that was like amazing. They would go in to offer incense once a year. Man, and you may only have done it once in your whole lifetime. But now, all of a sudden, all of God's people are priests. What does the priest do? The priest is a go-between between the world and God. A priest offered up prayers. 
priests went before God and said, the nation has fallen away. The nation is sinning. They're doing this. Please forgive them. Please save them and turn their hearts to you, O God. That's what the priests did. We have that privilege. And that comes back to the prayers of the saints earlier on. But God, as priests, uses our prayers. The bowl of incense that goes up before God is sent up by all of God's people now. Lord, I pray for my children. Lord, I pray for my neighbor. Lord, I pray for that guy at work. Lord, I pray for the, the, the new king. Lord, I, I pray for the war in Ukraine. Lord, please help these people and bless these. What are you doing? You're acting like a priest. You're a go-between between people who don't care to know God and a God who you know cares. But you're also, as a priest, offering up sacrifices. Not the, the Old Testament kind, but the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. That's what we do every Sunday when we come in here. Doesn't that make this time so important? And doesn't it give us a sense of preparation? See, I, 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 get, I get to prepare that sacrifice when I come. I got to thank God when I come to church. Not just plot myself down and say, okay, hit me with your what? Give me what, your, your best shot. You know, hit me. I'll see what, what I make of it. In a, no, we come to lift up our voices, to lift up our hearts, just as the Old Testament priest took the lamb and say, I've, been, I've set this aside especially. Lord, I'm offering this to you. Thank you for your love, for your forgiveness, for your mercy. And I give this to you, Lord. And that's what we do. He has made us a kingdom and priests unto our God. He has sanctified us. He has set us apart. That's our greatest calling. And if we leave that undone, then we are really missing the point of what he's saying here. This is what he's died to make us. Sometimes we just want the salvation part. I don't want the obligation. No. I've got to think as much about what he has made me as what it cost him to make me that. Let my people go that they might worship me. That's what he's getting at. This is what the song is all about. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and thousands of thousands. So you're going from this four creatures to the 24 elders, which represent the saints in the Old and the New Testament, to an ever-widening number and circle of myriads and myriads of heavenly beings. And they're saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The song doesn't change. To receive power and wealth and wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. See, friends, these are things that are attributed only to God. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Psalm 45, God is speaking to the Son and He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. Do you see how all of those ancient voices now come, come up, start to come home. They start to rise out of the Old Testament Scriptures and acknowledge that you are the one that we were looking for. You are the one that we were waiting for. And you blew our minds 
in terms of how you would do it. The angels' minds were completely blown. They were not expecting to see what they saw as the Son of God, the darling of heaven, was executed like a criminal, like an animal, slain on that cross. And it, when they finally realized what the design of all of that was, it just starts like a whirlpool to bring in everything in all creation to praise Him for who He is. He's worthy of all of these things, of, of power and honor. Paul says in, Phil, in, in Philippians, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and have bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name. He's worthy of wealth. Ask of Me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the great and He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because He poured out His soul unto death. Even Isaiah won't separate the two, will he? He won't separate the glory of Jesus from the sacrifice of Jesus. Even way back there, eight centuries, Isaiah is singing that song. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave you today? Whoever we are, whatever our background, Jesus makes a claim in our lives. The Scriptures make a claim in our lives. Here is the one at the center of history. Here is the one at the center of heaven. And He is saying that he is there as a slain lamb, suggesting to us that we need a Savior. We need, as the Queen herself said, He has come as a Savior. And we need that. Can you find that anywhere else? Can you find that anywhere else? Can you find it in yourself? John looked in heaven and earth and under the earth. He said, I wept because there was no one. And it's not you. And it's no one else. But the Scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. And as such, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our hearts. I want you to turn to Him today. I want you to believe on Him, to serve Him for the rest of your life. Give up all your excuses. Give up all your whatever's keeping you from Him. Just drop it all and do like these. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. Where else can we go? If heaven can't find anywhere else to go, if heaven can do nothing other than fall down and worship, then neither can we. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray, in these things this morning as we contemplate eternal matters, things that have to do with our soul. Lord, souls today, not only here, but across this island and around the world, hang in the balance in hearing and believing on the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would bring this home to us. For Lord, it is by Your Spirit that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. And so, Lord, may Your Spirit be moving among us this morning, helping us to close then this morning with the Lord Jesus Christ, singing it as we go back out those doors, a new song unto Jesus. In, in His name we pray. Amen. Well, let's uh, close then as uh, we...